0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the 10th chapter and the 10th verse, the 10th verse in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Or if you prefer, I am come that they might have life and that they may have abundance. It's the same thing. Now, there is nothing perhaps which shows more clearly the entirely wrong and false view which the average person has today of Christianity and of the Christian life and the Christian message then such a text as this. The thief cometh not, but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You see, this text more or less says, doesn't it, the exact opposite of what the average person today thinks of Christianity and of the Christian life. The average person today thinks of Christianity as something negative, something narrow, something small and cramped, despicable. He thinks of it as a kind of collection of vetoes and restrictions and prohibitions and restraints. Now, I'm suggesting, and indeed you will agree, I know, that that is the average person's whole conception of Christianity. And that is why, of course, he despises it and has uh, nothing whatsoever to do with it. He feels sorry for those of us who are still interested in it and who try to live it and to practice it. He despises us and he believes that we are to be pitied because we still believe in this sort of thing because we are ignorant and are content more or less to live a life of slavery and are not seeking as he seeks for life worthy of the name, life in capital letters, life which he regards as life indeed. The average person, as I'm saying, is grateful and thankful for the fact that he's alive at the present time and not say a hundred years ago, in the mid-Victorian period, when it was fashionable for people to go to places of worship on Sunday, and when you had what was called the Victorian Sabbath, and when life, speaking generally, in this country was more or less controlled by the Christian teaching and by the Christian faith. The modern man, I say, is profoundly grateful that he lives in an age of enlightenment, not an age like that, that as the result of all he knows and all that has been discovered for him, he seen through all this and has been emancipated and set free and has burst through these shackles that religion, and Christianity in particular, has for so long and for so many centuries kept upon the human race. Now, I'm simply saying something with which everybody must be familiar. The average man today who is not a Christian and who is non-religious would tell us that he is in that position because of this emancipation that he's known. And he tells us that it is because he wants life, a true life worthy of the name, that he's no longer interested in this. Now this, of course, manifests itself in many different ways. You ask the uh, average adolescent person why he or she... uh, ceases to have any interest in these things, and that, I say, is what you will invariably get as the answer. They've got the idea somehow that all this is just cramping and confining, and that they want to get out into a larger world and to see and to know and to experience and to enjoy life. This, perhaps in a very common form, Shows itself in this way. Most people brought up in the country want to get away today to the towns, want to come to London in particular, and you ask them why. Well, this I want to see life. Can't see life in a village, don't see life in the country. They want life. And life is to be seen and to be obtained and to be enjoyed in the great cities with all their amenities. How marvelous and thrilling and wonderful it is, and especially as you contrast it with Christianity, with religion, the life of the church and chapel, life as it used to be, I say, in those days and times and ages when these things were virtually in control. Now that is the common idea which the average person has today of Christianity. And yet, you see, here in a most characteristic statement, of his mission and his purpose in coming into this world, here I say in one of the most glorious things he ever uttered, our blessed Lord and Savior says that I am come, that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Now here is a complete contrast. He claims to do the very thing that the average person disputes and denials. He claims to give the very thing they say they want, and yet they won't listen to him and they won't have it. Now then, why this contradiction? What is the cause of this misunderstanding? People say they want life. Christ says, I've come to give life and to give it more abundantly. They won't listen. They won't come to hear him. They will have nothing to do with him. Why is this, I ask? Now, that's a question, surely, that is worthy of our most careful attention. And here I feel in this verse our Lord himself gives us the full and the complete answer. And I want to put it before you. Now, as I do so, let me preface my remarks by saying this. I want to be scrupulously fair in these matters. I am not here to defend Victorianism as such. Indeed, I'm very free to admit and to confess that far too often, Victorian religion was a complete travesty and misrepresentation of the New Testament faith and doctrine and teaching. I'm not here to defend religion. I'm here to preach and to propagate the Christian faith, the message and the teaching of our blessed Lord himself. Now, the church even herself sometimes is guilty of misrepresentation of this message. And there is no question at all but that far too often people were given the impression that Christianity was something purely negative. There were far too many who were ready to accept Matthew Arnold's definition of it which was, as you remember, he said it was morality tinged or touched with emotion. And far too often this great and glorious Christian faith and life were preached and propagated even by people like Dr. Thomas Arnold, the father of Matthew Arnold and the father of so-called public school religion. Far too often it was presented purely as a moral code and as a means of ethics and of behavior. And therefore, it's not surprising that people should have reacted against it. There was indeed a perverted kind of Puritanism which gave the same impression and depicted the Christian as one, in the words of Milton, who lived, who scorned delights and lived laborious days. It was something sad and drab and miserable. Now, it's not surprising that people reacted against that, but what I'm here to say is this, that they thought they were reacting against Christianity, but they were not. They were reacting against the misrepresentation of Christianity. So let me make this perfectly plain and clear. I'm not here to defend anything like that. I'm here to hold before you what our Lord himself said as to what constitutes the essence of his message and of what he has come into the world to give. Well, now then I ask, why is there this refusal? Why is there mis- this misunderstanding? Why is it with open Bibles before them people can still think of, of Christianity in the terms I've been depicting and say, no, I don't want it. It's narrow, it's miserable, it's just negative and restrictive and prohibitive. I want life. Why? Are they in this false position? Well, look at his answer. The first reason which I find in this verse for this error, for this misunderstanding is this. That such people who speak like that of the Christian message and the Christian faith do so because they've never really understood and realized the true nature of their own lives in this world. In other words, they've got a false view of Christianity because they've got a false view of life. I mean by that, they're wrong about this fundamental question as to what is life. What is it for? Here we are in this world tonight, we find ourselves in it. What is it all about? Now, that's the first question I think we've got to face. Leave Christianity, if you like, outside, out of consideration for a second or two. Let's just face this question. What is life? What is this thing which we call life and in which we find ourselves? What are we here for? What are we to do while we are here? What's it all lead? to? Now then, here is a great question. What is life? Now I want to try to show you that it's because they're entirely wrong about that preliminary question that they go wrong about every other question. What are we here for? Well now, is it, I ask you, are we in this world, are we in this life, simply to have what is called a good time? Are we here simply to have round after round of pleasure? Is that the meaning and the object and the purpose of life? Is life something light and trivial, which we can take with a smile on our faces and go laughing through it? Is it? Is it just that? Do we still feel that, even at a time such as this? Is that life? Is life really, and I must say it once more, the kind of thing that you would imagine it to be as you look at the front pages of most of the papers today? Is that life? Is that really worthy of the name of life? Well, it is obviously because so many think that that is life. And that the ideal life is a life in which you never do any work at all. You have an abundance of money and can have all the pleasures that you desire and never anything else without any cessation. It's because they view life like that, that they're not interested in this gospel. Ah, but you see, at once our Lord points out what a tragically false view of life that is. What is life? Well, the first thing that he tells us about life is this, that it is something which is desperately serious, that it is a place of tremendous decision. Indeed, he goes so far as to say that life is something which is extremely dangerous. Do you notice how he puts it? The thief, he says, the thief, cometh not but far to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's talking about human beings. He's using the image and the illustration of sheep. He's doing it just to bring out his great teaching. And he says that is our position, that's the position of all in this world. We are like sheep, and there are thieves who are threatening us. There are enemies that are set against us. We are here, and there are two great forces battling for us and battling for possession, the thief and I. Now that's his view of life. And you see how at once this view of life is altogether and entirely different from the modern, prevailing, popular view? Isn't life marvelous? Isn't it wonderful? Let's have a good time. Oh, what a pity we've got to work and all these troubles and so on. Oh, what a light thing, what a bubble, an iridescent bubble life is. And you just keep it bubbling and playing. Is that it? No, no, says our Lord. Life is the greatest and the most momentous thing. Why? Well, because you've got a soul within you. And there are these mighty forces contending for your soul. He says the weight of your life is in terms of the greatness of the soul. It isn't this animal part only. It isn't what people say it is. Think of man as he really is. And realize that man is in this world and here he is with these tremendous powers coming to bear upon him. You go through life and the question is, will the thieves get you and rob you in the way that he describes? Now, you notice how our Lord keeps on saying that in this great chapter. He is referring, of course, ultimately to the devil and his forces and his powers. And this is the tragedy of the modern world that men and women don't realize these things. They've never really seen life as a great and a big and a momentous thing. They don't know that we are surrounded in this world by evil powers and forces. You remember how the apostle Paul puts it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The problem isn't merely men and women. It isn't merely our own flesh and blood or the flesh and blood of others. Well, what is it? Principalities and powers, The rulers of the darkness of this world. Spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And you know what almost baffles my understanding is this. How anybody with any grain of intelligence in the modern world doesn't see how true that is. How can they possibly take this superficial, this light view of life, even looking at what their self-same newspapers put in front of them? Can't you see that there's some evil power at work? And it's here at work on men and women, this tremendous conflict. And indeed, we mustn't stop merely at describing the conflict in general. For what our Lord is plainly teaching is this. That as the result of this tremendous conflict, our eternal destiny is being settled. Our whole eternal and everlasting future is being determined while we are in this life and in this world. That's what the modern view of Christianity doesn't realize. Have a good time. Let's have a look at life. Let's enjoy life. And they've never awakened to the fact that they're only here for a very short time and that while they're here for these few years in this present passing world, their eternal and everlasting destiny is being determined. They either are going to be captured by the thieves and destroyed to all eternity or else they're going to belong to this good shepherd and have an eternity of bliss and of glory with him and the Father and the Holy Ghost and all the holy and the blessed angels. Oh, my dear friend, before we go any further, let me ask you this question. Have you realized that your life in this world is a veil of decision? Have you realized the tremendous consequences of living in this world and passing through it? Have you ever thought about anything about the passing pleasure of the moment? Have you ever considered the fact that you've got a soul within you which goes on beyond death and the grave that is eternal and everlasting? Have you considered that? It is because men and women have this fatally wrong and utterly superficial view of themselves and of life in this world That they go so tragically wrong about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gracious offer of his gospel. That's the first thing. But let me hurry on to the second thing. Our Lord points out that they're equally wrong about the life that they think they have. Christianity? Certainly not. I want life. I want to see life. I want to have life. I want to enjoy life. And they think, of course, that they have it, and that what they have is wonderful. But you notice what our Lord says about it? This, he says, is the second tragic error. What they think is life, and what they glory in, is nothing but a process which is robbing them, killing them, destroying them. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And they're not aware of this. They've never thought of it. It has never dawned upon their minds nor their imaginations. And yet, says our Lord, this is exactly and precisely what it, what it, what does, what is happening. And you know, this is the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. I could give it to you in endless statements, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Why, you've got it once and forever, and most perfectly, perhaps, in the famous parable of the prodigal son. That's what life does. Empties a man's pocket, turns him into a beggar and a tramp. Lends him in the far country with the swine and the husks. That's it. Steal and kill and destroy. But is there anybody who disputes this? Well, if so, let me establish the contention to you. Let me show you that what our Lord says about the non-Christian life is nothing but the simple and the most startling truth. Life, I say, without Christ, life which is non-Christian is a life which steals from you and robs you. What does it rob us of? Well, the first thing I've got to say is this. The first thing it does, you know, is to rob us, as it were, of God and rob us from God. Wasn't that the whole object of the serpent, the devil, in the original temptation in the garden? Here are Adam and Eve, God's, Creation, God's people belonging to God. And the one thing the devil desired was to obtain them, to take them from God, to steal, to rob God of his own people. And that's precisely what he did. So I start by saying that this process in life, these thieves, the devil and his powers, He uses many. He was using the Pharisees and scribes. Our Lord probably had them mainly in his mind. These are but instruments and emissaries. It's the devil at the back and the power of evil. The first thing we're robbed of is of our very selves, as it were. But it doesn't stop at that. Let me just remind you of some of the other things of which We are robbed if we are not aware of the seriousness of life and of the world and the flesh and the devil. Let me show you, my friend, what this which you call life is really doing to you. What is it doing to men and women? Oh, I say again, go back to your newspapers. Read about them in the journals. Listen to it on the wireless and everywhere. Do you know what it robs people of? What it robbed us all of? Our innocence. Our chastity, our purity, our honesty, our truthfulness. These are the things that are so evident in the modern world, aren't they? People are shouting about a marvelous under one. They're seeing life. They're enjoying life. They come to London for life. And what are they getting? Well, that's what's happening That's why the moral problem is such a great one at the present time. That is why there is such confusion. That is why there is not only moral delinquency and juvenile delinquency, but that is why the whole of life is becoming involved and complicated, and the authorities even are having to consider in conference after conference what can be done about it. What else does it rob us of? Well, you know, it robs us of our very energy. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And it is a hard life. The life of sin is a very demanding life. It robs you of your energy. And for this reason, you see, it never gives you anything, it only takes. Have you ever considered that? Look at the sinful life, which seems to be giving so much at the time. What does it really give? Look at a man under the stimulus and the effect of alcohol who last night felt he was full of energy and that he was having life and he was really enjoying life and having his fill of life. Look at him this morning and you'll find a man who's been drained of energy, weary and tired, aching in his limbs and in his head. What's it been doing to him not putting energy into him but draining him of energy? And the whole of the sinful life does that. That's only one illustration. Give way to any lust or passion or desire. It'll leave you exhausted. It's a drain upon our very physical energy. And it robs us even of our health. I could establish this to you. You take the things people are going in for today and which they call life. What are they? Well, here's one of them. Eating. Eating. And they seem to think that real life and real enjoyment and living means eating more and more and more. And you know what they're doing as they are eating in this way? They're robbing themselves of their health. They're eating too much all along the line. And all the fats that they glory in and rejoice in are simply thickening their arteries, raising their blood pressure, sending them to early graves. Have you noticed the increase in these stress diseases, these attacks of coronary thrombosis? I'm using terms that you're familiar with, and these attacks of angina. What's the cause? It isn't only overwork, it's overeating, and overdrinking, and overindulgence in every single respect. Eating and drinking, and sex and abandon, and the whole time they're Dissipating their energy, they're being robbed of it, and their very health is being undermined, and men are old before their time. But not only that, it robs us of peace and of rest. People are in for life. They want enjoyment, they say. This is the way to have it, and what's happening to them? Well, they're not getting it, are they? Isn't the world very unhappy? Isn't it restless? Isn't it troubled? Isn't it at the edge, as it were, and always at the extreme end of the tether and its nerves are frayed? I could keep you endlessly on this. This is a moral problem. It's a social problem. And people are trying to discover what can be done about it. And it's all due to the fact that men and women don't realize, you see, that what they regard as life is just robbery. They think they're receiving. It's being taken from them. The thief cometh not but to steal and to rob. And perhaps most tragic of all, the life of sin is a life which robs us of happiness. Isn't this tragic? Isn't this, after all, the masterpiece of the devil? That what he comes to us and offers us is happiness. If you want to be happy, he says, you stop going to a place of worship when you're adolescent. Stop going to Sunday school and everything else that talks about this... Assert yourself. Say you're a man or a woman now. Go up to London. Have a good time. See life. Then you'll be happy. And you see what's really happening is that they're being robbed of happiness. The way of the transgressor is hard. I don't think life has been as unhappy as it is today for a very, very long time. Oh, Of course they have to keep up the show. On with the motley, the paint and the powder. Let's keep up appearances with your heart bleeding and breaking. That's life today. Men and women are profoundly unhappy. Hence their resort and their turning to the various means and methods of escape. What a terrible thing this life is. It thus, I say, while appearing to give us so much, robs us and leaves us as penniless, helpless victims by the roadside of life. But not only that, it kills. I mustn't keep you, my friends, but this is some, these are some of the ways in which I can show you this. It kills everything that is best in us. This life that appears to be so wonderful, what does it do? It kills the moral sense. It destroys a man's sense of values. It tends to kill the conscience. The extreme point is, of course, as Paul puts it in writing to Timothy, when the conscience is seared as with a hot iron, but long before you come to that, there is a slow and a steady decay of conscience. Now, that wasn't my phrase. That was a phrase of Mr. John G. Wynant, who was the American ambassador in this country in the early part of the war. He said that very thing. There is a slow and a steady decay and death of conscience going on, he said. He saw it, not only amongst nations, but amongst the individuals. The moral sense, the sense of conscience. What else? Well, another terrible thing about sin is that it always destroys and kills any sense of refinement and of judgment that may be in us. Haven't you noticed how life is becoming more and more coarse? People are loud in their appearance, loud in their dress, loud in their conversation, rude in their manners. Isn't all this happening? Why? Well, because, you see, this kind of life, it kills refinement and judgment, sensitivity, sensibility. What else does it kill? It tends to kill a sense of shame. How loud and bold men and women are becoming in this modern world. When did you last see a modest and a demure person? No, no.
1: The sense of shame
0: is gradually being killed. And men and women not only are not ashamed of having sinned. They'll boast of it. They'll glory in it. They'll regard you as a back number. A mode If you don't do these things with them, the sense of shame is disappearing. And wrong has become right. And it kills in the same way a desire for better things. The soul even ceases to struggle. Hope has gone. Hope is killed by it. Up to a point we still hope and have ideals. And we think we can be better. And that the world can be better. But as this process goes on, hope is killed within us. And we cease to struggle. And we end in what world the position of the majority today? Cynicism. I couldn't care less. Isn't that it? And people think it's wonderful and clever. I couldn't care less. Cynicism and utter despair. This life, I say, kills everything that is noble and uplifting and wonderful in men, even since the fall. And it leaves us exhausted and dissatisfied. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Yes, but I must go on to the last thing. It even destroys. And what does it destroy? Well, what it destroys, of course, is the soul itself. What do you mean by that, says someone? I mean this. The real life of man is the life of the soul. He was made by God and he's meant for God. He's a spiritual being and he was meant to enjoy a spiritual life. He was meant to be in relationship with God. This other life destroys that. And man is left lifeless, dead in trespasses and sins. He doesn't know God. He's outside the life of God. Oh, it's not surprising that a man in a hymn wrote words like this. The ruins of my soul repair and dwell without a rival there. John Howe, one of the great Puritans of 300 years ago, said that men as the result of sin and life in this world can be compared to some of these ancient ruins, some old castle or some famous house that you see about the country. And there it is now in semi-ruins and the moss has grown over it and the ivy. But sometimes you'll see a notice on such a ruins and you read the notice and this is what it says. Once upon a time, such and such a person lived here. He said, how like... The soul of men, since it has been ruined and destroyed by sin. Do you read the notice on every life? This is what you read. Once God dwelt here. In the soul of men. Once he dwelt there. God made man perfect. Made him for himself. He lived with him. His life was in him. But now the ruins are left. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Oh, my dear friend, are you still boasting of this life as you call it? Do you say still that this is life? That's what it does. Steals and kills and destroys. These people, I say, are entirely wrong in their view of the life they think they have. But let me hurry on. They're equally wrong in their view of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How do they think of him? Well, they think of him, you see, as a teacher or as an example, as a moral exemplar. They think of him as one who is always making some impossible demands of The great moralist and the great moral teacher. Oh, what a tragic mistake. Do you know what they've never realized about him? Well, what they've never realized is the meaning of these words. Listen. I am come. They have never thought about that. Jesus, they say. Jesus of Nazareth. The one who preached the Sermon on the Mount with its impossibly high standard. Jesus. And they don't like this because he ever seems to be standing between them and the things they want and the things they like. No, no, they're not interested in Jesus. Ah, it's because they've never realized the truth about him. This is the truth. I am come. I am come. Where has he come from? Nazareth, yes, I agree. Where from? Bethlehem, I agree. But is that all? No, no, my dear friend, what you haven't realized is this. He has come from heaven. He has come from eternity. He has come from the bosom of his eternal father in glory. He was there in all his glory and perfection. And he looked down upon the earth and upon the world. And he saw mankind robbed, killed, destroyed in the things that are most wonderful. And he came. He left the courts of heaven. He humbled himself. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, that made himself of no reputation. I am come. They've never realized that. They think he makes demands. He has come. Still less do they realize that he has come in order to give himself. The good shepherd, he says, giveth his life for the sheep. He says, men and women prefer the thieves. They look at me and they see nothing in me. They don't know that I'm the good shepherd and that the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He has come that we might have life, but we can't have life as we are. Why? Well, we've sinned against God. And the law of God is exacting its demand upon us and the demand is death and punishment and everlasting separation out of the life of God. That he has come to give his life a ransom for many. He has come to make his soul an offering for sin. And the blind and the tragically blinded men and women have never seen it. crouched this And they want life. And they think that he somehow has come to rob them of life. It's because they don't know that he so loved them that he didn't love his own life, but gave it unto death, even the death of the cross, that he has come to give his life a ransom for many, that he might give them this gift of everlasting and eternal life, this thing that man can never obtain for himself, try as he will, this in all its fullness that the world is crying out for without realizing it, and which it can never succeed in finding itself, he has come to give it. Oh, the tragedy of misunderstanding him. And that brings me to the last and the final and the ultimate tragedy, which is this. Their terrible wrongness about what he gives and the abundance of what he gives. I am come that they might have life and that they may have abundance. How had you thought of Christianity until this night, my friend? Tell me quite frankly. Hadn't you rather thought of Christianity as something which is always asking you to give things up? Hadn't you thought of it like this? You say, now if I become a Christian... I've got to stop drinking, I've got to stop smoking, I've got to stop going to the picture palaces, I've got to stop going to theatres, I've got to stop dancing perhaps, I've got to stop all the things I want to do. It's always asking people to give up and I'm putting on a straight shirt as it were and I'm putting on a sackcloth and I've got to take up a life that I see nothing in and I've got to try and keep certain commandments. Hadn't you thought of it like that? And you thought of Jesus Christ as the greatest sport the world has ever known, who's always asking you to forsake and to give up, who's robbing you of everything, and gives you nothing in return but some narrow and miserable and dark and cramped kind of life. Wasn't that it? Well, it must be, otherwise you'd have never said, Oh, it's so narrow. I don't want it, it's narrow. And I want life. I want something big and ennobling. Something that stretches out before me. Wasn't that your idea? Well, if it was, you see, it's because you've never understood him. Nor ever understood what he came into this world to give. What has he come to give? Well, he says, life. What is this? Oh, I'll tell you what it is. He has come from heaven to earth and taken upon him the form of man and of a servant and has gone to the death of the cross and was buried and rose again and ascended to heaven in order that he might send down the gift of life. What? Well, a new principle. That's Christianity. Christianity. Christianity isn't telling you to live the Sermon on the Mount and keep the the Ten Commandments and not to do this and to start doing that. No, no, it knows you can't. And that's sheer mockery and madness. Christianity is primarily a gift and a gift of life. He puts a new principle of life into us. It's difficult to describe this, but that's what he was always saying as he says it here. He would said it to the woman of Samaria. The water that I shall give you, he said, shall be in you. A well of water springing up into everlasting life. Life, a new principle. Why, says the apostle Peter, because we are Christians, we are partakers of the divine nature. This is what he has come to give. What you and I really need, you see, is a new principle of life. We are spiritually dead. That's why we don't understand him and his way of life. And we need a new life. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We need to be quickened. And he has come that we may be quickened. He imparts through the Holy Spirit something of his own life. He's taken humanity into himself. And he sends it back, as it were. And we are given this principle. And he says it's a very full life. It's an abounding life. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. What does this mean? What are the characteristics of life? Well, this is the characteristic of life, isn't it? Life is something that expresses itself. I am alive and I express the fact that I am alive. How? Well, through my mind, through my heart, through my will. Now I say that it isn't life unless those three things come into it. And the tragedy of what men and women regard as life today is this, that it doesn't take in the whole man. It's very good for the body, but it has nothing much for the mind. It has nothing for the heart and soul. But here is life, and life more abundant. Let me prove it. Is this true? Well, let's test it. Does it give anything to the mind? You know, this is one of the most glorious and one of the most wonderful things of all, the way in which this life gives something to my mind. It gives me a new way of thinking. We, says the Apostle Paul, have the mind of Christ. What does he mean? Well, I think it means something like this. Here am I in this world of time, baffled and bewildered, reading my newspapers, listening to the statesman. Where am I? I don't know. I don't understand. The temptation is to say, it doesn't matter. Let me have a good time while I am here. But that's not intelligent. That is not to exercise the mind. How can my mind be exercised? Here's the answer. Come to this book. Here is complete truth. And, of course, before you can understand it and appreciate it, you need a new mind and a new understanding and a new outlook, and you'll get it. He has come that we might have life, and it's a great life for the mind. It is only here you get a true view of life and of men in this world. It's only here you discover the meaning of life and the purpose of life, the object of life and how to live life. Does it help me, says someone, with regard to the present position and the present conditions? Yes. It's the only thing that explains things as they are. Why is the world as it is? The answer is because of sin, because of the things I've been describing. Does it hold out any hope for the future? And the answer is still yes. It tells me that all things are under the hand of God. It doesn't tell me that everything is suddenly going to become all right. It tells me that because there is sin, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And it'll go on until Christ comes and destroys all his enemies and sets up his kingdom. That's the explanation. It's the only one. The mind. What of my heart, says someone, Equally full. Do you want love? Of course you want love. Well, here you get it. Here you know the love of God to you, the love of Christ to you. And he'll shed his love abroad in your heart and you'll begin to love him. Love? Why there's no love like it? And are you out, I ask, for happiness and joy? Is there any joy comparable to the joy of a knowledge of sins forgiven? The joy of this new life in Christ Fellowship with his people, and above all, fellowship with him. I'm sorry for anybody who doesn't know it. There's nothing like it. Peace. Fear's gone. What else do you want? Your heart is crying out for romance and for thrill. Well, here it is. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. He didn't expect it. Romance. What am I speaking of? I mean something like this. That suddenly you see the grace of God and the power of Christ working in another life. You suddenly see a person who's been the slave of sin being redeemed and rescued and changed and becoming a rejoicing Christian. There's nothing like it. Oh, the thrill of it all is your heart desiring something. Here it is. Life. And likewise for your will. It'll give you energy. It'll provide you with work to do. There is so much to be done and so few people doing it. Such a master to work for. Life, mind, heart and will. Complete satisfaction. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's the first characteristic. The second is this. Life is something that grows and increases and develops. Does what men and women call life do that? Well, I ask you simply to read the biographies and the autobiographies. It's a life that begins to vanish as you get older. As you get to middle age, you're already a bit too tired for it all. Your powers are failing. And when you're old, you can't do it. And it's got nothing to give you. And it leaves you as an exhausted mass. And you slink to your grave and out of life without a hope. And without a comfort. What seemed to be so marvelous and so full and so abounding becomes less and less and smaller and smaller and ever disappoints you, and leaves you at the end exhausted and wretched and unhappy. But this, I say, goes on, and it develops and increases. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you know him, the more wonderful he becomes, and the greater the life he gives you. But finally, It never ends, not even at death, not even in the grave. It is eternal life. The life he gives us here and now is but a foretaste of that which is to come. The Apostle Paul puts it in these words. He says, I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us and to us. Did you notice how Isaac Watts put it? The men of grace have found glory begun below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground, from faith and hope, may grow. The hill of Zion yields a thousand chosen fruits, a thousand chosen sweets, before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. My dear friend, what you and I are given in this world by Christ is a mere forties. Something to whet your appetite, an earnest, an installment. The great gift is yet to come. This is not a temporary life. This is eternal life. Thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come That they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Come, let me ask my question as I leave you. Have you got it? You want life, don't you? Everybody wants life. I ask you, have you got life? Is your mind satisfied? Is your heart satisfied? Is your will satisfied? Is your soul satisfied as well as your body? Have you got something that's satisfying you now? Have you got something that you know will last? Have you got something that you know will be with you in the river of death? Have you something that you know will be with you beyond? Have you got life? The Son of God left heaven and came on earth and went to the cross and the grave. And rose again that you might have life. Have you got it, I ask? For if you haven't, it means everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. You know, if you haven't got this life before you die, you'll go on to all eternity as you are now. You'll see what a fool you've been. You'll be seeking but never finding. You'll live a life of endless remorse. You'll always have loss. But Christ has come that you may have life. He gave his life that you may have life. And I tell you in his name this evening and with his authority. If you really want it, you have but to come to him and ask him for it. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Do you want this life for your mind? Do you want this life for the heart? This satisfaction for your emotions? Do you want life that will give you energy and power and give you something to do and satisfy your will? Do you want life? The life of God in your soul. Ask him for it. Cry out unto him for it. And he will give it you. Don't leave this service without it. Ask him for it. Plead with him for it. He died that you might have it. Amen.